Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. I'm not going to lie, today's episode is a heavy conversation, a much needed conversation about grief and loss. As today's guest says, 10 out of 10 of us will die. It's inevitable. We'll experience the passing of someone that we love and have to navigate our own response to grief and loss inside the communities that we live. Jess's story about grief and the way that she beautifully rawly and openly shares her story is as complex as grief itself. It's heart-wrenching, joy-filled, tear-jerking and has the critical punctuation of enough swear words required to share such an experience. After losing her firstborn son, Monty, in 2006, Jess Williams experienced post-traumatic growth thanks to her community. And she talks about how we can support others through their own post-traumatic growth. Her passion with the Groundswell Project and the Compassion Community, where she is pulled to talk about death and grief in workplaces of all places, it keeps her up at night. And she invites everyone to be part of the collective change around death and dying in Australia. This is a powerful conversation. And whilst there are some components of this conversation that are tough to hear, it is truly a remarkable conversation that ended with some long hugs between Jess and I. And it's that power of creating connections and safe spaces to talk about grief and death, which is why I wanted to bring you this conversation. I would encourage you to lean into this conversation, to listen all the way through, to build the community around you and to know that there are people sharing in these stories as well. Grab your tissues, you've been warned, (laughs) but some of them are good tears. So grab your tissues, be kind to yourself and carve out the space to soak up this life-affirming conversation with Jess Williams. Jess, great to be sitting down with you and great to have you in the studio. Thanks so much, Ali. Look, you navigate some pretty hard topics and you've... Um, put yourself in the way of these kinds of conversations, particularly one of them, you know, particularly around grief and, and loss. I guess I want to take you back to even growing up. Mm. What was your understanding about grief and loss? Were you taught things about grief and loss? What was, what was your world in that space back then? I learned things about grief and loss. I don't think I was taught much about it. Um, but I'm a I'm a Pakia girl from New Zealand. I'm a white girl, and I grew up in um, a white society that was connected to a Maori society. So I used to go to the marae on the weekends and ride my bike. And of course, the marae is a place where people are expected and allowed to grieve and meet um, in community. So look. God, what a great question. I feel like we're going to get into some serious therapy here, Alison. But um, I, um, I grew up in a, in a small town in Wellington, New Zealand, 
And I had a, um, I have a filmmaker father, an American mother, and I had a Vietnamese stepmother who had schizophrenia. So I had a really weird, weird, eclectic childhood. (laughs) So my home was like happy and full of sort of arts and food and joy, but it was also full of pain as well. We didn't know my stepmother had schizophrenia until years and years later. So I think I kind of grew up with a keen sense of um, love and loss being sort of two sides of the same coin. I can imagine they would have woven together even within the same day at times, the pain and and Mm, joy. Absolutely. We were nothing if not present (laughs) to what was going on. Um, And certainly just my job was just to be a kid and to ride the waves of all of that. But it wasn't until years later that I looked back, I suppose, and go, wow, that was a really good training ground for what I was going to face later. And here you are (laughs) navigating some of those, those worlds around death and life and, and the conversations and the way that people turn up yeah. to some of those. And you've come to that through some of your own experience mm. as well. Can you talk us through what that experience was for you? Yes. So, um, so I was a woman in my 30s and my, well, my first year of 30. I remember the moment of turning 30 and um, somebody said to me, your, for, your 40s are your power years. And I thought, okay, so what are my 30s? <laughs> Do I have to <laughs> wait have 10 to years? Wait? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I got pregnant and um, I, you know, a family of, of three brothers and a father. So the first uh, person in my family to have a baby, the only girl to have a baby. Um, and it was a very um, welcome event. I was not married to to the father of my baby, but that was fine. This is Australia. You know, we get pregnant to work. Well, we decide to have a baby and then we'll see if we like each other enough to kind of stay together. It was a bit crazy. Um, and I had a very uneventful pregnancy, uh, very normal, and I got to two weeks overdue. And um, I was at home and I was um, watching Law and Order. And I don't know if you remember that entry, that, that lead-up music. I can picture dun, it. Dun. Yes. <laughs> My partner and I at the time used to always try to get the dun-dun. Um, it was actually at that moment that my water broke. And so, dun, dun. Dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> and I did what I had planned to do, which is to labor at home for as long as possible. And I did that for about five or six hours. And, you know, the contractions started to roll over on top of each other and it was time to go into the hospital. We moved into the hospital and, um, gosh, what a change from home to hospital. It was quite a, quite an amazing car ride through the rain and it was quite beautiful. And I was, you know, on all fours on the back seat with my partner and his best friend, the two men taking me to the hospital. It was a safe kind of bubble to be in. Mm-hmm. And when you say describe it as beautiful, do you, you so you remember oh, outside? I remember, in I remember the, the rain. I remember yeah. Oxford Street. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it was sort of four in the morning and it was just a swish, swish, swish of the tyres. And the contractions would come over me and it would be a, a deep moan and then you, I would just rest between the contractions. I noticed that I start talking in the third person sometimes. Mm. This is 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but I do remember that. I remember um, moving into the birthing suite, um, greeted with happy midwife faces. You know that face? <laughs> yes, yeah. Right, we've got our job. That's <laughs> it. Sleeves are rolled to up, do. you know. And then I laboured for another, gosh, five hours. And um, things started to get a little bit tiring, a little bit straining. And, um, and then the second dint happened. <laughs> 
um, the Doppler was put on my belly and I was told that um, we needed to get the baby out now. And that, that those were the words that was that were used. So um, I was taken out of the room and taken down the hall into a labour ward and the room was suddenly full of people and my legs was, were put into stirrups and an obstetrician uh, came up to my nose and said, Jess, I need you to push with everything that you've got. And so um, I did. And um, boy, I, did I push. <laughs> and um, I birthed my son, Monty, and Monty was 10 pounds and he was beautiful. And uh, when he came out of me, they took him to the corner of the room and like many mothers, I just prepared myself. I was relieved that the labour was over and mm. I was excited to meet him. But when they brought him to me, he was dead. And um, <laughs> I remember the obstetrician handing him to me and at the same time saying, I'm so sorry, but your baby has died. And I remember those words being spoken to me directly. And um, I let out a howl that is probably a fairly universal woman howl in that moment my spirit was fractured mm. everything was fractured and after the howl everything just went quiet nothing prepares you nothing plans for that moment there's no. not a there's not a, a way of doing it yeah. <laughs> it's not a process is it yeah there's nothing to draw from or mm. draw on it's it, it's something that is just primal Mm. And um, and you're in it whether you like it or not. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where's know, the abort button, right? Yeah. Where's the? How do we get out of this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely, the abort button and the turn back time button. Yeah. Because I'd been waiting to meet him, and here he was, and no one could take him from me. He was mine. Mm. So I actually had him. Yeah. He wasn't breathing, but I had him. Yeah. And I held him. And my mum held him and my partner held him and the midwives held him and Siobhan held him and the three guys that came running in with the crash cart held him, mm. you know, and we talk about holding space, don't we? Yeah. Well, we held body as well as holding space. And um, in many ways I was a very proud mum. Yeah. People met him and then, boy, did people meet him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 The conversations that that need to continue around. It's it's such a, um, you know, I can't even imagine what that, that moment was like and, uh, you know, to say, and you're right, to, you know, to hold space but to really then hold this child, Monty, who, who you'd known and probably communicated with and connected with and was so intimately connected with for the nine months of, of pregnancy and... and life um and at that that moment um to to be able to actually meet um would have been yeah all sorts of emotions and thoughts I yeah. can only imagine kind of going and he, he was that. too big for the baby bath <laughs> right brought in this like round bucket shallow round kind of tub plastic tub yeah and, you know, we needed to give him a bath and um, his arms and his legs were hanging out, not because he wasn't breathing, but because he was just too bloody big. And we were all pounds. laughing. <laughs> we were laughing. And my dad was like, you know, Jess, you're kind of small. Like, how did that happen? I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm a warrior. We figured this out. <laughs> we yeah. figured it out, you know. Yeah. But um, 
you know, there was an incredible amount of laughter. We were in the, we of course moved out of that room. We went into another room, but we were in the other room for two days. Right. Um, and I often think about the nurses, you know, walking up and down the hallway and there was a sign outside the door kind of saying, this is, this is a special room. Mm-hmm. Be mindful when you walk in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they would see the sign and then they would hear shrieks of laughter. <laughs> So <laughs> hang on. Yeah. This is not expected. That's it. Just uh you know, as as um I'm oh, I'm not the only one to know this. You know, that, that grief just opens you up. It opens your heart, opens your joy. Mm-hmm. Um you laugh as much as you cry. And uh and I'm not the only one that knows that. I know many people who've had an experience of grief who 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 would say, Yes. We don't often talk about no. the upside of grief. No, no, we don't. <laughs> but I experienced it, absolutely. Yeah. I still do. Reflecting on that, was that a surprise in that moment? Was that a... Yeah, um, yeah. But, it, well, you know, what the surprise was was that people shared in it with me. Um, you know, they were looking to me for cues, I think. Mm-hmm. Looking back, everybody that was in the room, whether it was in the hospital or somewhere else, was kind of kind of looking to me and I would laugh and they would laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, and they would laugh and I would laugh. And then we kind of got the symbiotic thing happening where it was just this community of people sitting in. What surprised me actually was that and also how many people were willing to be in that space with me. Right. You know, a couple, I lost a couple of friends along the way, but but for the most part, people were, were showing up in an extraordinary way and sharing in that laughter and loss. Yeah, so I think often the question particularly in a grief space, whatever the space is, but the one that you described is is tough. You know, it's it's um, brutal. And um, I think what people are looking for is what's okay. Yeah. What's, and, and probably looking to you for cues is that, is it okay mm. that we have a moment of laughter? Is, there, is it okay that there's a moment of joy yeah. in amongst this? Um, and I wonder where that sense comes from. Is it okay? Because mm. you would think that at any point in your life, if you're grieving, everything's fucking okay. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You have the right to say everything is on, every, everything. There's no rules. There's no rules. Yeah. yeah. And yet we, you're right. We collectively kind of go, oh, what's the right thing to do? What's the... Is it different for different people in different circumstances? Possibly. Possibly. Mm. And like your question earlier about about my my background, my upbringing, I think we we probably learn those social norms from an early age, and we carry them through our lives about what's okay and what's not, perhaps. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So you had that moment where the doctors obviously come over, and that reality's hit you in a way that yeah, you know, like it, unlike anything else, I'm, mm. I can only imagine. Um, what happened in the days after that? Well, we, we got through the day um, and two things happened. The first thing was I had to call my workplace. And I was actually fine until that moment. Like, Were you conscious that you needed to do that? Yeah, that, it just dawned yeah. on me. You know, we're, we're in this bubble of love, crying, we're laughing, we're holding him, we're checking his feet and his toes. And, you know, from my heart, he's perfect, mm. <laughs> you know. He had a little little mark on his head from the forcep and that was it. Um, so we were okay. We were just in love, falling in love with our boy. And then I suddenly went, oh, God, 
my my team, they've been waiting. They didn't know that I went into labour, but I was two weeks overdue. So, you know, any moment. Was, this was before social media and mobile phones actually really, but, right. yeah, yeah, it was any moment. So so, um, so I made the call and I, I want to just perhaps pause on that. But this, this, So I'll come back to that. But the second thing was that a social worker came and whispered in my ear, you know you can take him home. Oh. And that just changed everything. I um, I was so excited and so happy. I wasn't conscious of my, I suppose, fears around having to say goodbye to him. I never really thought that I would have to. Right. But when she said I could take him home, uh, everything in my body said, yes, we're taking him home. Of course we are. Right. We had always planned to. So... Um, so it opened up a whole new... That, that changed my life, Ali. Right. It changed my life. So we... Up until then that hadn't entered your mind? That hadn't... No. No, I just... It felt like... Because we were in this cocoon. It's, you know, it was probably a trauma cocoon. Like mm. I'm sure there's some word for it. Mm. But... um, And just close family members were there. But... um, And we were given a sleeping pill to get through the night and... um. Of course, I you know I wasn't eating. I was kind of in a trauma, I suppose. Mm. But but um, it it just it, it was like the sun started to shine and something opened up and something happened when she said that. Like I something mended. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So you were able to complete what every parent, every yeah. new mum wants to be able to do is take their child home. Yeah. And of course, the first thing we thought about was this is a maternity hospital. It's the Royal Hospital for Women in Randwick, Sydney. We've got to think about the other mums. How how do we get from here to the car without upsetting anybody? Because mm. I was in a room surrounded by other rooms of women giving birth. Mm. So we got the baby car capsule and we put uh, Monty in and we just got a, a lovely little baby blanket and put it over the top. And we just like any other baby who's sleeping. So it was surprisingly easy. But mm-hmm. we, had a, we had a good conversation about how do we get from here to there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we left the room and there was, you know, I could feel there was a guard of honour from the women who were working on this ward. Um, they they stopped and they watched us walk past, you know, with almost their hands behind by their sides because oh. they all knew that we were there for the yeah. last two days. It was so kind. And we got into the car and we went home and we had a three-day vigil mm-hmm. with his body and uh, that's when my real community came to meet him. So we had an open door policy. And back to the call to work, my my workmates came to meet him as well. Yeah. Yeah. So when I rang my workplace, I got Trang, who was the receptionist, and the first thing she said was... (laughs) We had a baby. (laughs) We had the baby. (laughs) Exactly. Mm. So I asked to be put through to my friend um, Beth and Helen and I told them and they cried. And they found their breath and they came back to me and they expressed their sorrow and they went and told my boss who went and told her boss and uh, it it started a chain of communication that went to my immediate team Mm -hmm. and and they came to, you know, my inner circle came to see me in the hospital. They came to my home. They helped organise the funeral and they were part of my mob. What did that mean to you at that time, to have those people just show up? Oh, everything. Um, 
it, it led to some practical help. Like um, my partner and I weren't married, so we wanted and we wanted to have the local Catholic church for his funeral, but they wouldn't. The priest there wouldn't do the service because we were unmarried. And um, the that ch- it's in those points that you go, yeah, oh, you just like, process, dude, right? seriously. <laughs> I I went for a child protection group at the time, so you know we were all kind of social workers and nice people and. And so the chair of the board um, was the CEO of an NGO and also happened to be a priest. So he just got on the phone and said, bugger that, I'll come and do it. So, you know, they just made it happen for me. Yeah. Um, it meant everything. And the funeral was on a um, was on a public holiday and there were a number of staff there as well on a long weekend. So what it was doing was sowing the seeds for me to return to work eventually, which, mm-hmm. you know, I had to do. Uh, there was a maternity leave you know, person in the, in my job, so we they had to deal with that. That was a bit tricky. Yeah. Um, but it was about five weeks later that I returned. Now, I don't know how that would have been had they not met my son, been in my home, been on the phone with me every second day. You know, I I, I already walked into an unfamiliar environment. I was very, I felt a very different person when I went into that workplace again. Yeah. What had shifted for you? Um, my identity as a mother was in question. Mm-hmm. So, I, I and and if there's you know if if, if there's a, a mum who's lost who's had a baby died listening to this, I know that they're nodding on the inside. Yes, you know, yeah. to be a mother without a baby is a pretty tough thing. Yeah. So, um, I identified as a working person, as Jess, and also Jess the mum, and so that was fractured and I came back. And ultimately, deeply, I was um, incredibly guilty and sad that I caused them pain because we together had anticipated the moment that I would come back to show off my baby Mm. and I didn't have a baby to show. And I was embarrassed and raw and deeply regretful. It's fascinating how, you know, our brains look to look out for others. Yeah. Like that, like, I, I can understand it and I can can imagine where that come from. And on the outside you go, screw them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it was almost this unwritten contract, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Um, You're right. It was It was like a social contract of... I, I was very open about my pregnancy, you know, my belly was growing and they were taking silly photos and they had a we had a baby shower and they bought gifts from their own homes for me. Mm. I mean, they didn't buy me a ridiculously large gift that I didn't want or they gave me something that was personal. They mm. invested in it with me. And I was a very, you know, I still am, you know, hard on my sleeve kind of person. Yeah. So I welcomed them all into the journey and I found myself falling to my knees and saying, I'm so sorry that I didn't warn you. And I felt that for me also. Why didn't anyone warn me Yeah. <laughs> that this could happen? Yeah, yeah. How yeah, on yeah. earth did I buy into this idea that... It was all going to be okay. That it was going to happen for me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you just, you feel so stupid and and then I think well had I known you know what does that even mean as you said there would have there's no preparation for something like that Mm. and you know however many years ago one in five babies died but 
thankfully we don't have that now. We don't. It is unusual yes. for a baby to die at birth. So yeah. it kind of makes sense as to why we don't really see it or hear about it much. No, and it's not something you want to prepare for or plan for or entertain. Mm. Um, but I can imagine the anger and the sadness and the frustration out the other side of hang on, <laughs> this isn't the way things were meant to go. Yeah. Um, and so there is that element, yes, of we have this kind of sense of, you know, you you don't die before your children, you die after mm-hmm. your children and mm-hmm. there's legacy and there's so forth. But I, I suspect too that that sense of outrage or indignation that you feel um, you you know we feel that when someone we love our own age or older dies too, so mm-hmm. there is you know there, there there is that kind of universal sense, isn't there, of shock disbelief and and I of when someone you loves die, someone you love die, and I um for for a number of years thought about that a lot about mm. why is it, you know, we 10 out of 10 of us are going to die at some point in our yes. lives, right? There's <laughs> nothing you can do to get out of it. <laughs> Duh. We're not getting out of this thing alive. Yeah, yeah. You know, we are in nature. Yeah. You know, yes, we live from our shoulders up a lot in our heads, but we are a part of nature. Um, and yet why? Why is it that we, you know, we're so stunned? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question to look And don't into. have the... Don't feel equipped, or we we don't bring it to the fore. Yeah, um, in the conversations that we have, mm. until it becomes a pointy end. Yeah, yeah, mm. in that space is some of that question has obviously driven the conversations that you continue to have and the way that you hold space for other people. Yeah, um, is that something you saw in that moment or I guess imagine going back into the workplace was really, mm. was just about, I can only imagine it would have been about one foot in front of the other. But yes, it was. Did you have a sense even at that time that maybe there's a bigger bigger thing here to be a part of Look, or not uh, yet? Yeah, beautiful question. I got there, it evolved, it evolved, mm. it emerged actually. Mm. Um, I think... One of the things that bridged that sense of what it's like to be at work and be grieving and the work that I do now is I remember having a conversation with somebody in the workplace um, so a few months after I went back. It was very, I was still very raw, still crying a lot all the time. And she kind of held my hands and she said, Jesse, you know, this experience is just going to make you so profound. You know, you're going you're gonna to grow and you're going to have such wisdom and I remember being so pissed yeah, that bad. she would say that to me. Yeah. How about I don't? I and I don't be wise. Exactly. I was like, man, I am a girl with a broken heart and you actually just don't want to sit with that. And yeah. that's fine, dude. That is so fine. I know it's hard. I know. I'm I'm the girl with the dead baby. I get that. Mm. But don't make your meaning my meaning. That is not my narrative and that's not how I see it. So I think that actually sowed a seed for me. Mm. <laughs> it kind of grew fruit later. But, you know, look, I, I underperformed for three years in that workplace. I don't know how the hell they kept me on, but they did. They did. And um, I eventually got the manager job and I felt such love for them. And I carry that story into other corporate places now and I, I, I encourage workplaces to 
you know, wrap your people with love, people. You know, there are, there's not a lot of rules around this stuff. If Mm -hmm. you have an inkling to care, just do it. Yeah, don't it's nec- okay. <laughs> it's okay, yeah. You don't necessarily have to call the psychologists or the psychiatrists to come in. In fact, it's better that you don't. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of science around that, that we mostly get better when our friends and family help. Um, so, so, and then, so my work changed and I, I, oh, I got something Back, I remember those little moments of, oh, I feel joy. Oh, no, no, it's gone. It's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I feel joy. Oh, no, it's gone, you know. And then the moments of grief, the moments of sadness get shorter and the moments of joy get longer. And then um, I wanted to really reinvest in my life a good sort of one to two years later. And and then my career changed and time went on. And um, so it was about eight years after that experience of Monty and, you know, his ashes are in a, a beautiful vessel next to my bed and I get up uh, and watch the sunrise on the 16th of April every year. Um, and so I have a ritual that honours him and he mm. is a living, breathing part of me. Mm. Um, and so I was just kind of getting on with my life with that truth yeah, and with my family knowing him and my friends knowing of him and so forth. Um, and then I um, I was working in social entrepreneurship um, and social enterprise and change and change making. And I shared my story with a woman called Carrie Noonan, who's a clinical psychologist, and she founded the Groundswell Project in partnership with Peter Murray. And Peter is a playwright. Um, so Carrie was the health and Peter was the arts and they created an arts health organisation. And so I joined the board um, as chair. And um, and that came about through my story and sharing my story with Kerry kind of what, what it showed up for me in that conversation was that three day vigil that we had with his body was what she and many other people call a compassionate community at end of life. Mm. And this is the natural inclination that we have to gather in times of crisis. And when she affirmed my experience by saying, Jess, people are doing it all around Australia. They're doing it around the world. You know, mainly we're talking Western culture, Western society, because other cultures have been doing this for a bloody long time. They've nailed it. (laughs) Us white people. We haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah, we're trying to. And this is where we're actually at this very exciting point. Uh, of time where we've got language now to talk about this. And so the social worker who whispered in my ear, she had what we call death literacy. She had an awareness of what people need. You know, they need the practical information in order to do it well. Because in a very um, medical, very clinical model that's often missing, there's a pragmatic thing that we need to do. Yes. and it's almost like grief happens over here yes. and then once that's contained then we'll get on with that so it's mm. hugely insightful for that social worker and um but not only for that that one individual the 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 nurses and the midwives who who sent you off and you described that so beautifully in mm. the way that they were present and and supportive and you know not allowing it to happen but really yeah that that literacy of this needs to be your way and yes. if this is the, the way, then it's important. Yeah, thank goodness they had that. Mm, yeah. Many, many medicos, a number don't because they 
uh, working in an institution that has a culture and it's a system with norms in it. Mm. And so um, you're right, often bereavement and grief and what we know about good grief is separated out from the job that people have to do, mm. the, the professionals. So, you know, that, that three-day vigil was not just family and friends. It, there were professionals there too. We had the funeral director come in and go out mm-hmm. um, and she... You know, on the final day, she had to. Well, her job was to bring Monty's body in, so um, we had to keep her, his temperature cool. And back then, we didn't have baby cooling beds. We have them now. Mm. They're just little thin plate, uh, metal plates, with a little engine, a little motor thing on it, and it mm-hmm. keeps the torso cool, so you can have um, your loved one's body with you. Back then, it was you know dry ice and a fan. Right. <laughs> so we had to learn how to do these things, but we did. We we made a few mistakes. We fumbled through it. But the professional, um, sorry, we had the, the funeral director, um, two of them actually. Um, we had the florist coming, knocking on the door, poor guy. He had great business, I tell you. <laughs> but he, he, you know, like every two hours, knock, knock, knock. Hi, Jim. <laughs> Come on in. Back again. <laughs> Another one. You know, and then he started to send a flower of his own oh, because beautiful. he started to feel a connection with us. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was intermingled with with professionals and, and regular folk. Mm. And we all kind of um, did it together. And that's... You know, when we look at, so moving away, I suppose, from, you know, my own story, when we look at how people die these days, you know, most of us will die. uh, Most of us will, in our lifetime, be told that we will probably die of something that we have. So we will die of a chronic ailment or a Mm -hmm. disease or a dementia or something. And we will be alive in that moment. And we will lean in and move into a dying phase of our life. Mm-hmm. So we've got time to imagine what that could be like when we're well. Mm-hmm. And for many people, they imagine it with the people that are their tribe, their people, their, their people folk. And so a compassionate community is one that gathers at, at the time of dying, but also after death. So it's time to be with the body. It's the funeral director coming in and saying, we recognise what's going on here. We don't actually have to take the body straight away. We can come back tomorrow or we can take the body, put the body in the morgue, cool it down and bring it back and you can have the body for another day. In New South Wales, you can have a body at home for five days. I never knew that. Yeah. I wouldn't have even known when to ask that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's quite extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? And, um, and when I share that with, with people, I can, oh, I can just see their faces now, you know, that... There's often a sense for some people a regret of mm. oh I didn't know that when my mum died or my dad died or my husband died and wow what what could we have done and I'm very mindful of that mm. makes me a bit cross on behalf of, of of people I suppose who who might feel that sense of regret yeah um, but yeah m- many people don't know that and um, we all need to know it yeah. Yeah, and then it becomes a choice. Absolutely. If that's something that yeah, right feels me. really important and, and is comfortable and have the capacity and capability, yeah. both emotionally and, and practically. Um, and then for those who choose not to, that's okay as well. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what are the conversations around grief and loss that we need to be having more of? Oh, that, well, it 
that it's just normal. I don't know if the Kubler-Ross model really serves us mm. as a society. Mm. Um, Talk me through that, like what's yeah. gotten through. Because, I, yeah, I'm interested in that. I agree because I think in society we, we like boxes. <laughs> so and we, we love frameworks and, and we love if you can Give me a seven-step process for that's what you're it. going through over there. And I can, that's it. Oh, that's the oh, anger showing she's up. She's in denial. <laughs> been there yeah. or we've all tried to figure out that that process and I'm with you I don't yeah no <laughs> if we could throw it it's out it's comforting isn't it there it's is something comforting in it mm. um because it just feels like a feels like a certainty when there there's no certainty yeah um yeah. but where doesn't it serve us why what's well, it doesn't serve us because it doesn't explain the behaviour that we see in front of us always. Um, I mean, certainly when you're grieving, you have moments of anger and despair and bargaining and all those sorts of things. Moving on is certainly is um, the moving on language absolutely, in my opinion, does not serve us mm. at all. We incorporate our grief into our life. We grow around it. Mm. We grow because of it. Mm. And I would go so far as to say we're empowered by it. Yeah. The idea that we move on from it is uh, is an appalling thought, actually. It almost feels um, like it almost dishonours that person who's passed. Mm. Um, that 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 moving on and the other one that rattles me every time is the um, time will heal. I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> like, time just feels like it was even further since, you yeah, know, I've lost that that's person. It. And what is it about life that we think that it's about the length of time yeah. that we're here, yeah. you know? I mean, you've got more time to have a, have fun, sure, but, yeah, it's all those platitudes are there because, you know, we need something when we're faced with a chasm and... Um, you know, the, we know the best thing to say is I don't know what to say. Like that's mm. just the best thing to say, even when you might have an inkling of what to say. I, you know, I'm pretty um, pretty good at the grief stuff, but I, I that's generally what I say because mm. it, it, it enables me to sit with that person in whatever they're sitting in yeah. and that's the greatest gift you can give. Yeah. So I think we've got a long way to go um, sort of in society to to really embrace the other side of grief or the other knowing of grief, which is the best thing is to sit in the suffering of others, to try to do that as much as you can. Don't use platitudes. Um, Recognise that pain is suffering is just the other side of love. It's an expression of love. Um, Share story, hear story, talk story. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks if we had a society or a culture that massively embraced loss and grief as a normal part of life, then for people who have had that experience, I just, I I kind of, it's crazy, but bear with me. Mm. (laughs) I kind of see them walking down the street talking as easily about that person that died as their neighbour or their friend or their flatmate. Mm. You know, it's almost like the ghosts among us because the people that we love are among us. Now, I'm not saying that from a religious or a spiritual belief, but there, Monty's in my bones. Yeah. No one can take him out of my bones. Yes, yeah. So totally agree he's with a part you. of me. Yeah, they've <laughs> formed who we are, the what, what, what we care about yeah. and what matters. Yeah. They're, they're 
part of, um, yeah, and particularly if they're, you know, if they're a parent who literally have formed us, you know, who have moulded our way of seeing the world or those, you know, influential, and it mightn't be a parent, it might be an aunt or an uncle or a key influential person in your life who, yeah, yeah, they're they're a big part of who we are, I think. Um, Yeah. Or who we don't want to be or, you know, all of that is still informing. Oh, and look, and there's, you know, uh, when we're talking about deaths, you know, that result from, from cancer after a long potentially time of suffering, then death can be a relief, obviously. Mm. So and, and so loss is tempered by the experience of of your relationship with that person and your mm. journey with them and so forth. So there's different different shades and colours, but but um I mean it's certainly when we think of the grief experience in the workplace context, it, with the compassionate workplace work that we do at Groundswell, it's so disruptive, lovingly disruptive, to even share a story of a shocking death, which for some, you know, hearing my story feels like a shocking thing to hear, mm-hmm. which I understand. Um, but to hear it in a workplace setting, you know, is is um, is really it's been really interesting. So I've been doing this work for about three years now mm. in workplaces. Yeah. And um, I started the first thing I did was I invited a bunch of investment bankers <laughs> to meet me at seven o'clock in the morning a week before Christmas um, in Barangaroo in one of the highest <laughs> offices with this beautiful view. And I put fruit and croissants and coffee on the table. And I said, "We're just going to talk about death for like an hour and a half. I promise I'll have you out of here by right. ten to nine. And so, um, and there was, you know, laughter and there were some tears and uh, stories being shared and it was a very candid, very lovely, very unique conversation. Mm. Did and they I, know what they were walking into? Yes, they yeah. did. <laughs> yes, yes, they, they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I knew three of them and then I asked them to bring their friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, one of them, one of, the, one of the bankers used to be a doctor and he gave that up because he was traumatised through doing repetitive uh, CPR on mm. people because their families said, do everything that you can. And he knew that it was going to be futile. And that for him was a trauma. Mm-hmm. So he shared his story. And I was like, God, you know, the stories that sit behind investment bankers. <laughs> I wonder what other. With no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what other stories are out there. Yeah. So we agreed that there's an impact on the medicalized, the over-medicalizing of death. There's an impact on our people who work in those systems too. We've got yeah. to talk about that. So I asked the group, um, can I talk about the C word? And, of course, they all leaned in. You know, which one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I said, compassion, of course. You know. um, and, and, and so I, I suppose I came out of that conversation with a bit of confidence, another C word, to, to just go for it. And so what I'm finding is that people want the story, they want to hear more and they want to learn how to do it, but it's baby steps. Um, you know, and so we're starting to do things like let's talk about bereavement leaves, two days in Australia. Pfft. Who came up with that idea? Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> can't even organise a funeral in two days. No. But uh, have yourself sorted and back to work. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Um and so so it's absolutely still baby steps, but I do believe that workplaces now, you know, we hear about the human workplace because the robots are coming. Well, you know, I'll leave that up to other smart people to talk about. But if we if we are talking about being more fully human, what's more fully human than working and grieving at the same time? Let's talk about how, how that can happen. 
Um, I've heard stories of people highly, like highly regarded in their profession, highly capable people who have gone back to the UK, one story in particular, whose brother um, died of suicide and she came back to her workplace and everyone said, how was the trip? Not how was the funeral? Mm -hmm. How is your family? How are you? And they all knew the story of what had right. happened. Yeah. So, you know, she stayed in her workplace, but her attachment to her workplace fundamentally shifted. Mm. And, you know. Can't get, hard to get that back, right? Yeah. So she she had malaise. She just went through the motions. So that's what we know happens when we're grieving at work and it's unrecognised. We just go through the motions. For many people, it's the escape that we need. I loved having a job. It gave me something to do. Mm. <laughs> and for other people, the pain needs to be recognised. And as you were saying earlier, it's got to be up to the person. But, um, but it can't be ignored and avoided. That's, that's just not okay. I, I think that that strips something away from a person that's not okay. Mm-hmm. So a workplace... So if it's down to the individual who's going through the grief um, about, and I and I think that's a really powerful message as well, is that you don't have to decide, just sit and ask or yeah. bring it up. Um, and I can, can imagine that there would be people in workplaces tuning in or um, there might be leaders or managers who go, I want to, but I get a sense that they don't want to talk about it or the social cues is yeah. they're, they're, when I've asked them how they are, fine um give me my next task or and so this sense of well I've tried yeah is enough yeah what do I do from here yeah um yeah what would you what what have you seen or you know what might be some things that they could do to navigate I've seen I've seen the power of just tweaking the question a little bit so how are you that's actually that's what most people ask. That's a really tough question to answer when mm. you're grieving. Mm. I don't know. You tell me. I'm fucked, actually. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am so sick of my own emotions that I don't. I don't want to have to articulate them for you. Yeah. So. And it's so messy. And, so and it's so messy. Yeah. yeah. And um. And we're kind of trained in work places, aren't we? To you know, be our best selves, our higher selves, our professional selves. Mm. So that's the context in, we, in which we're being asked, "How are we?" So now that can be a great question, can be a hard question. I would say use a little bit of emotional intelligence. If that looks like a hard question to answer, if you if you don't get a response, change the question. Mm. Yeah. So I think I think what so I'm going to attempt to speak on behalf of all grieving people. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we grieving people need, you know, is we need we need humanity in all its forms. We need someone to go fuck, man, I don't know what to say, man, you know, or like if that's your, yeah, if that's yeah. your personality, no, yes. I don't know what to say. Um, I asked you a question last week and it was a really dumb question. Um, now I don't know what to ask. Or, it, you know, the other thing that's really, really great is when someone says they're just going to do something. Now it has to be a low risk thing. You can't say to somebody, I'm going to come over to your house and clean your, you know, clean your house up every Friday is that's my way of showing that I care. You can't just decide that you'll do that. But but taking a small action and just deciding to do it, such a relief for the grieving person who doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. So I found out years later that my boss at the time, 
I'm going to say her name because I love her and her name is Vari. Um, and she, um, she made a bunch of decisions that I was not a part of at that time. So she recognised who my two closest buddies were in the office. She pulled them into her office and she said, Helen and Beth, you're Jessie's go-to for the next month. So the expectation is and the permission and the celebration is that you will take whatever time you need to go and have coffees with Jess whenever she needs to just go down to the cafe. I didn't know that she had done that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of looking out around at the environment around the person. That's powerful. That's powerful leadership to yeah. see that and to give your friends absolute permission, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. So that it's not even you. <laughs> like it it's actually them. That, it's actually them going that notion of that compassionate communities. It's got our grief is social. It's a social thing. Mm. It, it becomes complicated when it becomes an individual thing. That's not to say there are individual... Of course there are individual responses to it, but we are social animals, we're social creatures, and we are impacted deeply by whether someone looks at us or doesn't look at us, how they react and respond to us. So building the muscles of the people around that person is, is so critical. She also said to the team at the team meeting we're going to have on the agenda this sorry but this was before I went back to work a standing item and it was just Jess a standing item so at any point anybody could say anything and i she told me later one of the team members said look my granddaughter is about to give birth and you know I'm looking forward to having Jess back but I don't want to have to feel uncomfortable about talking and showing photos of my grandchild mm. at the photocopier because Jess is here. They talked about that openly. Well, how do we navigate that one? So there's a lot that can be said and the radical thing is what is the thing that happens to a team culture when they're willing to have those conversations? It becomes much more positive it becomes much more around about sorry it becomes much more than the grief story because people are having having candid conversations about what they really think yes <laughs> <laughs> and that's not Hallelujah. always easy <laughs> that's not always easy in a workplace yeah. yeah yeah but it's real and it's connected and connecting and if you can navigate through those hard conversations yeah um, you can only get to a deeper relationship by doing that mm -hmm. or to realise this isn't the place for me. Yeah. And that's probably better for you anyway. Absolutely. Um, yeah, right. So mm. so grief could be a catalyst for culture. <laughs> Absolutely. It's Grief and death are powerful community builders. Um, the community that was built in my home over those three days has stayed with me. For, for 15 years and will forever. Mm. People still tell me what it was like to, to be in the orbit of, of that. And um, I felt awesome after a while, not at the time, but, you yeah. know, after a while I was like, oh my God, I've got this, I've got this sort of superhero power <laughs> <laughs> where I helped other people kind of accidentally realise how awesome life is and how deeply love can go. And it was only because I was, um, thank you, thanks to the people that reminded me that I could do it and that I chose to do it, um, it had all of this, this impact. So it's an incredibly powerful community builder. Mm. And this is the grassroots work that is happening in, in the West that's called, we call it ComCom -Com for short, but um, 
you know, the spirit that comes alive when we have neighbourhood conversations, we have citizen meetings, town hall meetings where we say what... So if I could tell you about a recent mm-hmm. one. So we um, we had a conversation with um, in the northern beaches of Sydney where at DYRSL we said we're just going to have a town hall style citizens gathering. If you want to come and talk about death and loss and grief, come along. And we had 120 people and it was hosted by a local NGO and the Groundswell Project. Um, and this is a, a piece of work that we're doing. It's actually funded by Booper and we're, we're doing a lot of innovation work in the community. And, um, and we just had sort of an open mic session and a woman stood up and she said, I cared for my husband who died at home. The palliative care came, team came and helped us in the last few weeks. That was incredible. It made it so much easier. But now I am so lonely and I actually want the palliative care team back because... <laughs> And no one's visiting they were me my anymore. People. Yeah. yeah, they were my people for those yeah. for those few weeks. Um, and so, what started to emerge in this conversation was that we started to change the idea that care is just a burden. Caring is hard for someone who's dying, but it's not just hard. It's also affirming, life giving, connecting. Yeah, because you're hanging out. Hopefully, if you are in, in a compassionate community, you're hanging out with other people while you're doing it. Mm. So, so it's really exciting to see these conversations happen and, it's, and, and I don't think that they're just sort of Pollyanna or positive, you know. They are deeply felt. There's a lot of pain in there but there's, it, it feels like it's an activist thing. It feels like it's a reclaiming of something, of death, dying and grief in our communities, in our homes, in partnership with people who have got the training and the skills and the science to help us as well. To navigate it through because there's yeah. something about, um, so I've had my mum passed away in a palliative care unit and I remember also coming out of that experience going, the conversations in there are probably some of the realest that you ever have. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to put up any um, qualms. You don't have to be anything for anyone else. Yeah. It's just real. And everyone, and like the other families who are going through that, they're going through their own kind of thing and there is something really connected about that and I remember for me almost coming back into the community going like why are we talking about who's going to be working on the agenda or who's not taking minutes or like it just my tolerance just disappeared um so I almost think at that level you know in death like you say it's it's all of us are going to be impacted and all of us going to be affected by personally the people that we love um but yeah it's it's almost could this be the gateway to let's just get real, <laughs> let's just yeah. drop the crap about the stuff that we think matters yeah. but actually doesn't matter. You're right, that space between the deeply profound and the comp- incredibly trivial, <laughs> you know. I, where they, I remember where too, they cross over, it's yeah, crazy. Oh, going back to work and people would be arguing, as you say, about the agenda and I'd be like, don't you realise? <laughs> don't you realise? I mean, I, I talk about death pretty much every day mm. in my job. Um, and every now and then I kind of go, oh, am I a pain in the ass to people who, you know, <laughs> don't really an exciting hang thing. out with me, you know, <laughs> my poor children, you know, yeah. I have two girls now and, um, 
and um, they've got a, the, I've got bumper stickers on the dining room table that say 10 out of 10 of us will die and because we you know we do a lot of campaign work and stuff like that yeah um, yeah so I, I, I <laughs> do they ever go mum can we just leave an ignorant blitz around yeah. the house? <laughs> <laughs> they probably do um, they're probably a bit too young to articulate that my although my 12 year old might have an opinion I should ask her one day <laughs> but um, I, I'm hoping to take her to to um, India um, for a compassionate youth gathering of young people who work in end-of-life care mm. um, to talk about community activism around this work. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful um, and excited about young people taking over because uh, um, a young man by the name, oh, he's not that young, he's younger than me, um, Stephen Hunt, uh, put on a festival in Sydney called We're All Gonna Die and it was a one-night festival and he had over 2,000 people show up mm. and it's an arts festival so you could put your VR things on and be immersed in soundscapes and it was it was groovy and fun and I've never seen so many hipsters talk about <laughs> death before in my life and I felt like I was kind of the auntie there just like cheering them on and just yep. feeling um, so good. I think they're good at it because they, they get the social. Yeah. I think, you know... Um, the younger generation get get they grow up knowing that connecting being connected is good and they are all yeah. so connected yeah they're just kind of bringing that into a fairly un, unusual conversation which is about death and dying yeah and that that connection doesn't have to be it can be anywhere in the world yeah like it can be with anyone um, who feels like they're alone yeah but you can be connected absolutely in a new way in a way that you know 15 years ago wasn't yeah. Was it possible? Was it? No. Was it there? Why workplaces? What was your drawing to bring this conversation? Just because we in? spend so much time there, mm. um, and also workplaces are. Some industries have shifted, haven't they? So, with um, many of us, start work when we open our eyes and check our phone, we're in work mode, um, even if we have an office to go to. So, the boundaries between what's personal and what's work are so blurry that when I kind of cottoned on to that, I thought, gosh, well, what, what is it like when you're grieving and you've got really blurry boundaries and yet the workplace still is a place where your full self is not embraced welcomed or embraced? Yeah. That's got to be tough. That's got to be tougher on someone who's grieving to have some sort of mask or something on when there's a blurry line when social media connects us way outside of our nine to five normality. I get work calls on Saturdays now. I'm like, serious people? I'm old school. Don't call me on a Saturday. <laughs> but um, so so that was kind of, those were kind of the reasons. I, I suppose I just was the empathy of thinking about how hard it has to be for people who are grieving and in the, the new world of work in those those particular industries um, that have changed so much. But primarily it's because I just um, had a go at it and people wanted to have the conversation and I just felt I had a duty because I can talk about it um, and I should. So those who, you know, can do, <laughs> you know. So and at Groundswell, you know, we're a social change organisation and we draw our methods from the Ottawa Charter. So we draw our methods from public health, um, which holds as its central tenant that grief, dying and loss is everyone's business. It's everyone's business. So workplaces has to be a part of that. 
and I had an experience of a workplace that was so positive. I wanted to kind of share that. Um, so I now invite workplaces to, I, I ask them, what is your job to do? Where do you want to start? So there's one pl- workplace at the moment that I'm engaging with and we're just, we're, we're reviewing their bereavement uh, policy, but mm. we're doing it with their staff. And that's kind of the gateway drug for talking about death and loss. Mm. It's not easy just to get in there sometimes, you know. No, I was almost um, sitting mm. here thinking, like, where do you start if there's someone listening going, I, you know, that that pull towards having a team that, that talks really openly and honestly and there might mm. be some people going, I've got to have an amazing team, but grief's not front and centre at the yeah. moment. Um, well, no one's going through that. It's not. So I don't want to bring that up if you know things are going okay so where do I where do I start there's a there's a few few ways to start so the the sort of um the value proposition that I hope to bring to a workplace is I'll share my story so that you can find your own so and that's what's happened so I'll share my story I'll do a keynote or something like that and people in the audience will go I want to talk about when my mum died and other people who had the same experience or a similar experience who don't want to share their story are still, you know, they're still getting something out of it. They don't, not everyone has to talk. Mm. We don't pass around a talking stick, you know. Um, so, so, so that's, so that's, so that's f- first off. And, 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 and that idea of, you know, talking about mental health in the workplace 20 years ago was a bit weird. Mm. You know, you, you would have been a very brave person to have said, I have depression. Yeah. God. Uh, now with Are You OK Day, you know, it's really, it's prob- we're not probably there yet, but we're so much closer. Mm. Um, I see that happening for grief. I really do. Um, so when I kind of realised that, I was like, oh, my God, well, we have to get started. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of work. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, we have to get, we get through that 20-year lapse really quickly. Um, we run a campaign called Dying to No Day. Um, so what are you dying to know? And that's on the 8th of August every year. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, so I'm doing two events so far for that. One is I'm speaking at a, um, an executive's private gathering of his friends. He just emailed his friends and said, look, there's this thing called Dying to Know Day. I'm going to book a bar, a private room in a hotel or something. Jess is going to come along and apparently she knows how to talk about this stuff. And uh, if you want to come, you'll get a beer, you'll get a book and let's just talk about death. And he emailed me this morning saying a couple of people have said, yeah, it's not really my thing, but most people have said, yeah, wow, sounds edgy. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just kind of do it. Yep. Um, uh, and the other event is I'm running a lunch and learn and it's really just about death literacy. So the 10 things to know before you go. Um, and they're cerebral kind of facts, you know, they're not emotional. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, um, we don't talk about bodies at home necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we start with, um, we start with simple things like doctors die differently. Now that's a, a provocative thing to say. Starts a conversation. Why do they die differently? Well, how do they die differently? Well, they generally die with less intervention. They're more likely to die at home. Why is that? Because they know the system and they can navigate it. Why is that important? We should all know a little bit about the system and navigate it because mm. we're going to be faced with it one day. And so for many people, it's about their parents who are going to die and for the sandwich generation with young kids and older parents, they want to be equipped for that. Um, for the baby boomers, it's, you know, I don't have to tell you, they have opinions and they want to get their act together and they want it in a certain way. way. So yeah. it's about what what's the language that you need? How do you build your muscles? 
So there's a lot of ways to kind of enter it, enter into the conversation. And you're right, it can be, we've had a recent bereavement and we didn't know what to do and our eyes are open now. Mm. We need to um, build on that and get better at that. Um, I find that that's less, um, that's less of the invitation. The more of the invitation is we just get that it's a conversation that we probably should have. And I celebrate those workplaces for being progressive. Mm. Yeah. And we just get on with it. Just start where you are. Yeah. Start with the questions you've got. Yeah. And people will be welcomed into the conversation. That's it. At some point. And when you start with story, I don't tell my story with any attachment or expectation of anything. Mm. You know, I never get paid to tell my story. I never have any expectation of people liking it, not liking it, staying. People can leave. It's my story and you can't take it away from me and it's just genuine. So um, when you start with that, I've never done it and not had someone tell their own story. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a very natural place to start because it's all about listening, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And realising in amongst all the, the uniqueness of everyone's story, there are similarities. Yeah. And, and. That's where some of that community and and the compassion comes into play. Yes. They're really powerful stories. Mm -hmm. What do you hope for for your daughters around their own literacy of death and dying? Well, first and foremost, I hope they live their best lives (laughs) and I hope they live well right up until their last breath. I hope that they know that they are mortal. I hope that they have been exposed to enough ritual that they'll be kind of excited at designing one for themselves or someone that they love because ritual's awesome. Mm. I hope that they are present as present can be (laughs) when one of their friends is grieving chances are one of their friends will die from suicide given the stats Mm -hmm. I hope that they will be the kind of person that will be a strength for their friendship community Um, I hope that they will have superhero powers (laughs) because they grew up in a in a home where they saw and joined mum on her 16th of April to watch the sunrise and cried and howled and wept into the sun every, you know, on those mornings and then laughed on the way home and said, let's get, you know, let's go get some hot chocolate. (laughs) They've they've come with me on those mornings. So I, I hope that that's just getting that sense of that I had from visiting the Marae when I was growing up in New Zealand, I hope that that's getting in them. Yeah, the rituals, the yeah. stories, keeping keeping those that are no longer here still alive in the stories Yeah, around that. And they know they have a brother. Yeah. 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 Very much so. Part of their world, part of their yeah. story. Absolutely. Their sibling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such powerful stories and important conversations and um, I really, yeah, thank you for, for sharing those. I want to finish with one final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life 
when I offer that term up to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Tell your story. Embrace your pain. Live your life. And see your work as your love made visible. Beautiful. Thank you. And thanks for the honour for sharing your, your story, Jess. Thanks so much, Ali. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.